Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books and Sports. And on this episode, we'll be keeping the uh, stove hot in the offseason by talking with Jay Daniel about his retrospective look on the 1982 baseball season and postseason. Um, uh, we may now, at this point in history, in 2023, know uh, how it all ends, uh, who uh, finishes on top and who was the runner-up. But uh, it's fun to relive the intrigue of a season that remains special to fans of both uh, St. Louis and Milwaukee. But first, uh, let me uh, introduce my uh, guest and the author of the book that we're featuring on the New Books Network today. Jonathan, or Jay Daniel, has spent 20 years working in sports, both in front of and behind the camera, producing five seasons of Rays Magazine, a weekly television show about the Tampa Bay Rays, and working as a sports producer at Fox Affiliates in Tampa and Chicago. He is the author of Finally, that's with a PH, uh, and with a subtitle of the Phillies, the Royals, and the 1980 baseball season that almost wasn't. And he blogs at 80sbaseball.com. On top of all this, Jay is joining us today from his home base near Indianapolis to discuss the publication of Suds series, Baseball, Beer Wars, and the Summer of 82, and it was published with the University of Missouri Press. Uh, Jay, it's my pleasure to welcome you today to the New Books Network. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, the, this was a great book to uh, dig into, a fun read for me. Um, and that's partially because I'm someone, uh, <laughs> one of these weirdos that watches old baseball games on YouTube from the 1980s. Uh, um, I'm also a Cardinals fan, so um, I like how the season ends in 1982. Um, and uh, I think this book will be a perfect as a stocking stuffer for dads or grandparents, for people who want to relive uh, a baseball as it was back uh, in back in the day, as we say. Um, so uh, my first question for you is, how did this book on the 1982 season come to fruition? And uh, what was this process like for you researching and reliving the season uh, since uh, you you were there when it happened um, and uh, researching old uh, newspaper articles and so on to tell this particular story that you did? Well, I think the book was was a long time coming, and I've I've always been fascinated by that that 1982 Brewers team and how they just beat people to a pulp offensively. I mean, they they were such a fun team to watch, and I have a few close friends who were big Brewers fans at that time, even though we were growing up in Ohio. Um, so that particular season has always um, kind of stuck out for me. And then in addition to that, my grandmother was a big Orioles fan. She was living in Maryland um, at the time. And so when I would go visit her, I used to watch Orioles games with her. So I had a sort of a perspective from both teams. Um, and then my buddies and I used to play wiffle ball all the time, all summer. Um, and then, um, you know, at night and stuff like that, we had different places that we would play, whether it was day or night. We'd play in a parking lot at night because there were lights. Um, and then <laughs> during the day, there was a guy who had actually built a big field in his backyard. And we went there and played almost every day. We kept stats. It was crazy. But anyway, um, so, you know, so we used to play with football all the time. And, and with that last final season game, final game of the season, which we'll get to later with the Orioles and the Brewers, um, I actually didn't watch that game because I got together with all my buddies and we were playing wiffle ball. And, um, you know, so I rode my bike across town wearing my Orioles helmet that I had bought at Riverfront Stadium. Um, but as I got into the research for this book, I just really found it fascinating. I mean, I grew up near Cincinnati. And of course, in 1982, we didn't get a lot of coverage of teams other than the Reds. Um, and so it was really fun for me to go through the old newspapers and find out what happened from the perspective of the papers that were covering 
the Braves, the Cardinals, Brewers, Angels, all the other teams that were in the hunt and and the teams that weren't. Um, and it was really also interesting for me to read about the Twins opening their new ballpark and then Calvin Griffith subsequently having a fire sale um, and getting rid of all of his best players. So um, it's one thing to know the basics of a season, you know, um, which anybody can get from looking at baseball reference, but to really dive in and go through the details across the league gives you a new perspective. And that's really what I tried to do with the book. And you do jump around pretty comprehensively. You you tackle not just the teams that ended up on top or in the postseason, but you do cover the league pretty uh, uh, comprehensively, as I say. But uh, either way, no matter what kind of book someone sets out to write, there's always a question that you have of where to start the story. In your case, you had a couple of possible starting or several possible starting points, um, uh, including a very odd 1981 season preceding it with a player's strike midseason and the final standings that year should have seen the Cardinals and the Reds in in the NLCS in 1981. Of course, that didn't happen because there was a the strike and a split season, the first ever division series uh, that didn't feature either of those two teams that were on top in the National League. Uh, in the 1980 winter meetings, interestingly, Cardinals manager Whitey Herzog uh, offers to make the Brewers a pennant uh, a, a winner or contender with uh, two future Hall of Famers and a future Cy Young in uh, Raleigh Fingers, Ted Simmons and Pete Vukovic. And so you're consistently foreshadowing to storylines that would converge in the 1982 World Series, but you start things back pretty surprisingly to me at least in the 1880s so a full century back before uh, 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 the time when the season actually happens and at this time as you say in the in the opening chapter of the book uh, baseball has a very conservative ethos back then uh, the national league doesn't play games on sundays or sell beer at ball games and obviously all that's anathema to the clubs that would meet in the 1982 world series one that's named for its uh, city's beer making tradition and the other one that's synonymous for a very long time with Anheuser-Busch. So uh, can you talk about all these points of departure and what they contribute to the story that you wanted to tell in Sud Series? Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I th the, the 1981 angle came in in part from the fact that my first book was about 1980 um, and the 1981 strike really should have taken place in 1980. Um, but the players and owners essentially agreed to table the issue of free agent compensation and resume the season. And even at the time, people were saying, well, will they just kick the can down the road? Um, and so for the uninitiated um, from your listeners, there, there used to be when free agents were around, they, they would do a free agent draft rather than what we have now. Um, where, you know, anyone could sign Shohei Otane, could sign with any team in theory in the major leagues. Um, so teams would draft a certain number of players and and a player who was a free agent could only negotiate with the teams that drafted him. Um, and then there was also a system in place where teams could protect a certain amount, number of players um, from their roster. And then if somebody signed one of your free agents, you could select a player as compensation from the pool of the unprotected players um, and that and that those players not necessarily would come from the team that picked your free agent. So if you you know, if you're the Cardinals and and the Angels sign one of your guys, you could select a guy from the Dodgers as compensation. Um, and so that was the big that was the big sticking point for the labor negotiations in 1981. Marvin Miller, uh, the Players Association um, had rightfully argued that that would limit player movement because teams didn't want to lose players. Um, so that was the major issue of the 1981 strike and the split season format. 
um, that came from that was was a disaster, um, as, uh, as you pointed out. And if especially if you ask fans of the Reds or the Cardinals, um, you know, I mean, that's still a sore subject in Cincinnati. I don't I don't know so much if it is in St. Louis because they won the World Series next year. Right, right. But but the Reds, you know, kind of went into a tailspin after that. Um, and yeah, I mean, they had a, a big unveiling on the final day of the 1981 season where they unveiled a flag that said baseball's best record 1981, you know, which is a little odd, odd for a team that's not going to the postseason. Uh, but it was kind of a, a uh, you know, a, a, a gesture to tell baseball, let baseball know what their feelings were. And that flag hung in, in Riverfront Stadium, I believe flew in Riverfront Stadium, I think, until the stadium was torn down, if I'm not mistaken. I know wow. it was up there for a while. Um, yeah, so 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 that was that issue. Um, so I wanted to set the stage for the season by just talking about the fact that prior to 1982, it was the first time, you know, since the late 70s, where both the teams and the owners knew what the collective bargaining rules were going to be going forward. And so you saw a lot of player movement that year. You finally, because, you know, you had everybody knew, okay, here's what it's going to look like until, and I don't remember how long that first deal was or that deal was four years, five years or whatever. So teams say, okay, this is what we know we're going to be looking at. And so, as you said, one of the biggest characters in that player movement was, was Whitey Herzog. And from the time he took over, as Cardinals manager midway through the 1980 season until the beginning of 82, I think he, he made more than 60 player moves um, and completely reshaped the roster of the Cardinals. Um, and with that, he also completely reshaped the Brewers roster as well with the trade you mentioned. So, um, and then he also went out and got Ozzie Smith from the Padres for Gary Templeton and Lonnie Smith and a three-way deal with the Phillies um, and Cleveland. So, and then as for the beer angle that you mentioned, it was something I discussed with my editors as a thread that we could run kind of throughout the book to tie everything together. So I started with the beer and whiskey league in 1980, in the 1880s, I should say, um, and worked my way through the wars between Budweiser and Miller. Um, talked about the introduction of Bud Light um, and in the battle between those two breweries. So that was something that I personally found really interesting and something that I didn't really know a lot about. Um, but again, if you're writing a book about the, a baseball season that took place 40 years ago, no one is reading it to find out who won the World Series. You know, I mean, no one's saying, don't 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 tell me, um, you know, so you have to give people something else. Um, and so that's why I brought in the beer angle and all the pop culture references, you know, Pac-Man and Fast Times, because I really wanted to sort of place the reader back in that in that era and say, this is what it was like. <laughs> um, and and so that was that's the big fun part for me is, is all that research and then trying to tie it all together. We'll, we'll cover a little bit more about uh, the, the pop culture references and the hop culture, as as it were, uh, as we go along, because that's nicely peppered in throughout the uh, various chapters of the book, which uh, which kind of go uh, month by month throughout the season, but uh, also look into other angles as well. Um, but uh, although this book is titled Sud Series and you are looking, you are foreshadowing to the Cardinals and Brewers facing off in October, there's much more to it, as you, as you said, than these uh, two teams who would end the season as uh, pennant winners. So I appreciate the, the whole context that you offer throughout uh, with uh, Whitey Herzog's uh, circuitous baseball history and other uh, figures as well. Henry Aaron's Hall of Fame induction, uh, as if that was ever in question, but apparently yeah. he, he thought it was. Uh, Reggie Jackson being wined and dined by Ted Turner, all these little fun anecdotes and everything in between is really great. Um, but um, as the uh, 82 uh, baseball season is winding up, the Cardinals have gone 14 years since a World Series appeared. 
appearance. And the Brewers are kind of irrelevant since they uh, moved from Seattle in 1970. So you you do mention, of course, that uh, uh, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing going on. But what is the baseball landscape like going into 1982? And what teams were expected to compete for the pennant? And how unlikely is the uh, fall classic matchup that we ended up with? Yeah, I I think that's an interesting question because the landscape shifted so much due to the player movement that we've been talking about. And Reggie Jackson was one of, if not the biggest free agent um, on the market. And his signing with the Angels gave them four former MVPs in their everyday lineup. Um, He joined Fred Lynn, Don Baylor, and Rod Carew in that lineup. But but most people thought that the Angels pitching um, left them, you know, pretty suspect. And so that wasn't sure you know, what was going to happen there. Um, so with Reggie's departure, you know, the Yankees decided to emphasize speed over power and they brought in Ken Griffey and Dave Collins and, um, and their plan was to run a lot. And that just went South in a hurry. Um, they, they went from, from a world series contender in 1981 or world series participant in 1981 to years of futility until the core of Jeter and Posada and Bernie Williams and Mariano Rivera. And those guys came around in the nineties. Um, and then, and then the Orioles window was still open at this time as well. I mean, they fell short in 79, but then they won the world series in 1983. Um, they still had quality pitching. And then the addition of Cal, Cal Ripken to uh, a lineup with Eddie Murray, uh, made them really formidable. Um, and then in, in the AL West, the Orioles really were still the class of the division, but they fell short just at the, toward the end of the year and the Angels win that division. And, and then the National League had a lot of contenders in the East. The Phillies won the World Series in 1980. They won one of the division titles in 1981. <laughs> the Pirates um, were still a talented bunch coming off of a World Series win in 1979. They still had Parker. They still had Stargell, although Pops was at the end of his career. Um, but the consensus pick um, really across baseball to win that division, if not the World Series, was the Montreal Expos. Hmm. Um, and they came up short in 1979 and 1980, right in the last uh, weekends of the season. As a matter of fact, my ringtone uh, on my phone is Mike Schmidt's home run that won the World Series, won them the uh, pennant in 1980, the, the great Andy Musser call. Um, but uh, yeah, so the Orioles came up short in 79 and 80, but won the other one of the division titles in 1981, knocked off the Phillies in the postseason. And I mean, and that team was just loaded with talent. I mean, they had future Hall of Famers and Gary Carter and Andre Dawson and Tim Raines. They had one of the best pitchers in the National League in Steve Rogers, um, but it just didn't work out for them. And then, and then the NL West was interesting because the Reds, like the Yankees, retooled their lineup after losing pretty much all of their stars from the 1970. It was really just Bench and Concepcion that were left. Um, they had a young core of players that they were really counting on, and essentially none of them panned out. Um, and then the Astros were another team that people liked, but they fell flat as well. And both Cincinnati and Houston fired their managers in 1982. Um and, and then the Braves just sort of came out of nowhere and put it together, and they edge out the Dodgers on the final weekend of the season to win the division. So three of those four divisions came down to the final days of the season. It was really uh, an exciting run. 
And um, it, yeah, absolutely. The, the, there's a lot of uh, uh, coming from nowhere in the 1982 season, it seems, to uh, uh, to, to win divisions. And, and the Braves start to the season, which we haven't mentioned as well, uh, uh, running off of, what was it, 13 straight wins or something to yeah. that effect? Uh, it's crazy. But um, it, it, as I said at the outset, you've uh, written plenty on uh, on 1980s baseball, including your, your previous book on the 1980s Phillies team um, and their World Series run. Um, I can't say that I personally witnessed much 1980s baseball since I was only born in 1985, but I've caught quite a bit of it over the years on video from people who, you know, recorded games of the week on VHS and uh, saved them and digitized them for YouTube. Um, uh, first of all, it was from me wanting to know what the Whitey Cardinals teams were like, and then I latched on to, you know, Vin Scully as the voice of baseball back in those days. Sure. Um uh, I guess my question is uh, for you, what about baseball in the 1980s has been so interesting for you to cover and relive and rekindle in your own career? Is it just sort of a heavy dose of nostalgia for the baseball that you grew up with? Is it those fantastic powder blue uh, uniforms that everyone seemed to adopt at at some point? Or is there something inherent to the game, the way that the game was played back then that remains uh, uh, attractive to you? (laughs) You know, I think the easy answer to that question is yes. Okay. Uh, you all, know, above. I mean, all of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have sort of long said that the golden age of sports is whenever you were between the ages of say eight and 16. Sure. Um, you know, the, the players were, were bigger than you, stronger than you. They were older than you. They could do things that you couldn't. And you didn't know much, if any of the off the field stuff. You know, so these guys were all larger than life. I'm 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 56 years old now, and and because of uh, you know calendars, uh, my my entire high school and college career were in the the decade of the 80s. So I've always had an affinity for that decade. You know, I love I love the powder blues. I love the movies. I love the music. I love you know the neon and the cheesy fashion. Um, and I also love you know, the, the way the game was played back then. I mean, I, this is kind of a get off my lawn moment, but I mean, <laughs> I, I love the fact that there was an emphasis in the eighties on putting the ball in play. Right. Um, And, and the pace of play, which came from that Um, there was certainly wasn't an emphasis on pace of play then because it was no one thought about it. Um, I mean, I am no fan of Rob Manfred at all. Um, But I do like some of the changes that were implemented this past off season, to, to get more balls in play and so on, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And I also love the fact that we've seen the return of the stolen base. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's not, there's not much that could match the excitement of when Ricky Henderson draws a walk or Tim Raines or you know Omar Moreno or later in the decade with as for Cardinals fans Vince Coleman and Willie McGee. Right. Um, you know, once those guys get on, the dynamic of the game changes. Um, and, and for a long time prior to this year, right. I mean, a walk happened and then you just sat there and waited for the next walk or for someone to go big fly and, you know, and you're just sort of sitting there. And so now it's, it's really interesting to see how, you know, how guys pitch and, and, and there's always that threat of a stolen base and it just changes everything about the game. I mean, and you, you talked about watching games on YouTube and there's a Phillies Reds game from the 1980s. I be, I'm, I'm almost certain that I was actually at this game. It was in Riverfront. Steve Carlton faced Tom Seaver. Um, and in one instance, Seaver was on the mound with a runner on. And I think he threw between eight and 10 pitches and threw over to first base a couple times. And the entire at-bat was, was about two minutes long. Um, 
because he just got the ball and he threw it and, and the hitter wasn't stepping out after every pitch. And, you know, it was just different. So you, you compare that to what we saw in recent years and, and it's, it's just night and day and it's, it's more fun to watch. I mean, and I, and I will say the other thing too, is there's, you know, major league baseball in their quest to, to, um, you know, increase their television audience, ergo their ad revenue, really not their audience, there's an entire generation of kids, in my opinion, who have never seen the end of a World Series game. Hmm. Because and the, at least people who live, say, east of the Mississippi, you know, because some of those games, you know, again, this year not included, those games were ending at 12 30, 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, you know, and you can't, it's awfully tough for a, a 10 year old to, you know, <laughs> to get up and go to school the next day. And so, I mean, I think that's awful. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, we, you know, there were still postseason games that were played during the day. And you could see the end of games and games didn't didn't last until 12 o'clock at night or one in the morning in some instances, or in the case of the Dodgers uh, playoff game or World Series game a couple of years ago that went 17 innings. I think that game was over at three in the morning or something like that. Mm -hmm. So but that's an extenuating circumstance. But anyway, I mean, I think uh, the pace of play is a big part of it. And I'm and I'm happy to see that we've gotten back to somewhat quicker games. And, uh, you know, the rules that were put in place, the uh, pitch clock and so on, could arguably, uh, you, you could make the case that uh, uh, whether or not they're doing it intentionally, they're bringing back a, a sort of brand of 80s baseball. You know, the, Absolutely. what was it, the Diamondbacks and the Orioles are both uh, this past season big base running teams. And that's not something that baseball has seen for quite a while. Yeah, uh, and it's so fun. It'll be nice to see what teams can take advantage of the new rules and, you know, weaponize them and bring back a, a different brand of baseball. Exactly. But, uh, very good. Uh, so going into this book, uh, I wasn't, I guess, expecting such a focus on the rest of the league, but I was pleasantly surprised to see it. Uh, and it also makes sense to relive it. As you say, you, people don't need a book to pick up to know what happened in October of, of 82. Uh, and also, uh, as someone who lived the season, you don't know what's happening ahead of time. Uh, ahead of time. So so uh, you're, you're reliving the season as if the full intrigue is uh, un unfolding before you. And so uh, in some cases, you talk about how tragic both the Rangers and the Twins are in these days. Uh, these are two teams uh, who cleared huge hurdles of their own this past season. And uh, for people like me who didn't know how uh, involved on a day-by-day -day basis owners like Steinbrenner or uh, Ted Turner were in, in their team's on-the-field performance, some of that felt like reliving a whole uh, soap opera that... Uh, I'm sure uh, it was fun to rekindle. Uh, what were your favorite storylines from this season that maybe didn't involve the postseason teams uh, um, that would eventually make the playoffs in, in October? Uh, I think to your point, the more I dug into the Twins and Rangers, the more interesting I found them to be. Um, both teams were really, really bad. And, they're, they're you know, there are bad teams every year, but they're, you know, oftentimes bad teams are boring. Um, but these two teams were definitely not. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, it was their owners made things so much worse, um, that those teams and those stories really became interesting. I mean, there's a, there's an incident in the book where I talk about the Rangers having a, an organizational meeting and they hired armed guards around the stadium to keep reporters away. Um, and, and at the end of the meeting, essentially nothing happened. They just sort of agreed that they were going to wait some more, um, so, I mean, the, the, the owner of the Eddie Childs, the owner of the Rangers at the time was really, you know, a piece of work. He owned the team for a short period of time, but 
if you go back and look at his tenure, it was pretty interesting. Um, and then with the twins, we saw, like I said, we saw Calvin Griffith trading away, I think four of his starters, opening day starters, uh, just a couple weeks after opening a brand new stadium, um, which is kind of unheard of. Most teams, uh, certainly today, retool and rebuild so they can compete right away when they get a new stadium. And Griffith did just the opposite because he was just so cheap. Um, and so, you know, I mean, but but we also saw the development and the acquisition of some players who became key parts of their success later in the decade in that process, notably Kent Herbeck, and then they get Tom Bernanski and Gary Gaetti in those trades. So, um, and then we've talked about it earlier, but I think the fall of the Reds and the Yankees was really interesting and also extremely rapid. I mean, both teams just sort of were, were one of the part of the class of major league baseball. And then they both just fell off the, off of a cliff, the Yankees for, you know, nearly for almost basically a decade. And then the Reds had that run where they finished in second place three years in a row. I think it was in the late eighties under Pete, but, but they just didn't compete for a long, long time. And so I think if you really dig into any baseball season, you're going to find lots of interesting stories and they often, they don't revolve around the teams that were, that make the playoffs. There's all sorts of drama that's going on with these other teams and other markets, be it managerial moves, uh, player moves, stadiums, what's going on in the city at the time. Um, and so that's a big part. I think if you talk to just about anyone who's written books like this, whether it's a baseball book or any sort of history, the thing that they like the most is the research and digging through <laughs> and uncovering things. I mean, you'll hear if you talk to authors, you'll hear the term nugget a lot, you know, where they, oh, I found this nugget, you know, and then the, the challenge is, okay, how do I work it into the narrative? What can I tie it to? Um, and that's one of the things I really love to do is, is try and find something and then using sort of my base of knowledge to say, okay, this is similar to what happened over here. And so I'm going to try to tie those two things together and then maybe take it in an entirely different direction um, rather than just a resuscitation of facts, which you know can get pretty boring pretty quickly. Sure. I don't know if it, count, if it counts as uh, kicking a team while they're down, but I enjoyed uh, <laughs> the, the downfall of the Yankees uh, quite a bit. Uh, as did I. <laughs> good, good. Nice to know that we're uh, in uh, in simpatico here. Um, anyway, uh, to turn the conversation back to Milwaukee and St. Louis, um, since I think perhaps those are the fan bases that'll be most interested in your book. Um, uh, both of them suffered through injuries early on in the season, and the Brewers seemingly had a lot of shenanigans going on in their clubhouse: uh, roughhousing in practice, uh, blisters from. Pac-Man consoles and possibly also kicking Pac-Man consoles that led to injuries. <laughs> tell us yeah, a little bit about that. tell us a little bit about the injuries that these eventual October uh, combatants had to deal with, and how did they weather the storm of uh, the injuries and fare through the regular season to play really distinct brands of baseball for both teams? Well, I think, and I, and I say this with no disrespect to you as a Cardinals fan, right? But I think. Um, I think a huge factor in St. Louis winning that World Series was that they were just healthier than the Brewers. Okay, um, that's, that's, that's fair. I think certainly the Cardinals had their share of injuries. Every team get, has people get hurt, right? I mean, that always happens. But but the Brewers lost Raleigh Fingers in September to a, an elbow injury that forced him to miss the rest of September and then all of 1983. Um, and that really completely changed the dynamic of, of the World Series. Um, St. Louis had their bullpen hammer and, and Bruce Suter and Milwaukee didn't. 
And that's a really tough obstacle to overcome. Um, and then additionally, Pete Vukovic was pitching through September and October with a torn rotator cuff. Um, and I don't know how many people aside from Vuk pitched in game seven of a world series with a torn rotator cuff, but that cannot be a long list. Um, and, and then again, he threw 14 innings in 1983, missed the rest of 1984 <laughs> and, and was basically done. Um, he came back in 85, but, you know, didn't pitch very much or very well. Um, and then Gorman Thomas was dealing with a knee injury that he uh, suffered in during the ALCS. Ben Ogilvy badly bruised a rib cage during the ALCS, missed one of the games in the ALCS. Um, so those are those are five or four or five really big players, um, key players from Milwaukee that were either out of the lineup or you know hurting, and that's really really tough to overcome. I mean, for St. Louis, Ozzie Smith was dealing with a badly bruised leg. Um, that he suffered in September. Joaquin Andohar was questionable for game seven after he took a line drive off of his leg and went down like he'd been shot. Yes. Uh, in one of the previous games of the World Series. But but he bounced back and he's quite a character. Um and he pitched really well in game seven, you know. So the Cardinals were built on speed and defense, and for the most part, they still had that in the World Series, but the Brewers were all about power. And they had somewhat questionable pitching. And so with Ogilvy and Thomas, they combined for 73 homers during the regular season, and they combined for one in the World Series. And then Milwaukee's two top pitchers were either out completely or pitching through a major injury. And so that's really, really tough to overcome, um, especially in a, you know, in a World Series. Um, so, yeah, it was a huge factor. Yeah, and and Gorman Thomas especially goes missing uh, essentially in the World Series. He hits exactly. under under two hundred, and as you say, no home runs, um, including one that was uh, stolen from him by Willie McGee, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have two teams that uh, played different styles of baseball. One that kind of led their division most of the way through nineteen eighty two in the Cardinals, and the other that came from behind and were at some points hovering in fourth or fifth place during the season. Fired their manager, you know, traded for Don Sutton, and they took different routes the postseason. Um, it turned out for Milwaukee, though, that the season came down to um, a winner-take-all game 162, not a 163, but a 162. So it was scheduled that they would play the Orioles at Baltimore's Memorial Stadium. No one knew ahead of time that it was uh, for the division and for the playoffs, but it, it was. And they had um, Don Sutton on the hill. So uh, younger fans may know him as the TV voice of the Braves on TBS, but um, uh, Sutton's been kicking around in the big leagues since coming up with the Dodgers in 1966, and uh, he takes the ball for them in, in game 162 against the uh, Orioles. So how does that final day go uh, for the Brewers to save their season, basically? Yeah, I mean, that, that final day could have been a disaster for Milwaukee. I mean, they entered the last weekend of the season with a three-game lead over Baltimore and four games scheduled in Baltimore, including a doubleheader on Saturday. So obviously all, all they needed to do was win one game um, and they could in the first three, and then they could rest a little bit, set up the rotation for the playoffs. But the Orioles win Friday night, and then they swept the doubleheader on Saturday. So all of a sudden, it's they've got a do-or-die game on the final day of the season in Baltimore. And then on top of that, Earl Weaver had announced that he was retiring. So you have that emotional factor um, of, you know, this legendary manager potentially looking at his last game, although as it turned out, that wasn't the case. Hmm. Um, and, and the Baltimore fans 
you know, were outstanding. I mean, just an amazing fan base. They had the the famous cab driver, Wild Bill Hagee, um, this guy who just somehow during 1979 became this sort of fan icon and he would disappear and end up on top of the dugout spelling Orioles with his body and all the fans would cheer along and the Orioles went along with it and became this huge, huge deal. So it was a really electric atmosphere. Um, Excuse me. So, so Sutton began that season in Houston. Um, and then when they dropped out of the race, the, the Astros sent him to Milwaukee for a package that included Kevin Bass. Um, and he had been battling some flu-like symptoms. And each day he woke up was sort of a crapshoot as to how he would feel. So he wakes up on Sunday feeling good, but he has to face another future hall of famer in Jim Palmer in that, in that day. And, uh, that was probably the most fun that I had in writing this book um, because I bounced back and forth that weekend telling the story of all the, the different series that were going on that had basically decided, not basically, they did decide the outcome of the season. Um, Brewers, Orioles, the Braves were in, in San Diego and the Dodgers were taking on the Giants in San Francisco. And so all three of these played, you know, like I said, just decided how the season ended. And so, but in Baltimore, once the game started, it essentially became the Don Sutton and Robin Yount show. Um, you know, Yount homered off of Palmer in his first two at bats. Sutton threw a gem, perhaps even within the confines of the rules, depending on who you ask. <laughs> and um, Cecil Cooper homered and the Brewers blew it open in the ninth inning when they scored five runs. And so this was also during the NFL strike. And so this game was carried live nationally on abc on sunday afternoon um which is not obviously something that you would see now um and so they bounced back and forth between this game and the dodgers and giants game as well so it was really a great day for baseball excellent and and so you uh, you bring up the legality of uh, don sutton's pitches uh you know reminds me of another storyline that we could have explored more through this and that's also the era of the spitter and uh, uh pitchers who are maybe only caught once or twice in their career but um yes. they always have the psychological advantage uh, against hitters of uh knowing that it might be coming and who, who, you need. who knows how the ball's going to move when it leaves their hand right exactly um so back to uh, uh, Milwaukee and the theme of them having the more difficult road to that World Series. Uh, they dropped their first two games of the ALCS to the California Angels, and uh, uh, the the Cardinals kind of uh, breeze past the Braves in the NLCS in part due to some uh, timely rain that uh, wipes out a Phil Negro start that uh, ends up as Game Zero as if it was uh, never played. So uh, how did Milwaukee manage to stave off elimination of the Angels down two nothing? Uh, had that ever happened before? to your to your recollection and uh, which of these is the more remarkable feat in your mind and in, in this case i'm almost asking like a pti sort of question <laughs> uh <laughs> you you pick uh was it harvey Keene's mid-season turnaround of the brewers or whitey herzog's transformation of the cardinals from a team that seemed to be spinning its wheels throughout the 1970s to a real contender once again um i, I mean i think to, to talk of the first part of it, I think a big, the biggest factor in that was, was Gene Mock, the Angels manager. And he, he I, holds the record for, I think, the most wins um, without winning a World Series. Hmm. Um, and he was the manager of the Phillies in 1964, where they had a famous collapse in September. They had a six and a half game lead on September 20th. 
uh, in the National League. And again, this is pre-playoffs. So you win the National League and then you go straight to the World Series. And 10 days later, they were two and a half games back. Um, so they they it was a what a nine game swing um, in 10 days. And so they ended up missing out on the playoffs and Mock's handling of the Phillies pitching staff at that time was really the thing that 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 haunted him throughout the rest of his career, throwing guys on short rest. And people looked at that and said he basically panicked um, in that situation. And so you fast forward to 1982, the Angels are up 2-1 in the ALCS and he brings in Tommy John back for game four again on short rest. Um, and John just gets lit up. And so they lose game four to set up a decisive game five. And and that's another thing for the uninitiated current fans might not realize that the league championship series were only five games, uh, best of five at that point. And so, um, so they go, the angels have a three to two lead in the bottom of the seventh inning of game five in Milwaukee. Um, and Mock leaves Luis Sanchez in a, a right-handed pitcher to face the left-handed hitting Cecil Cooper with the bases loaded um, and Cooper singles to score two and give the Brewers the win and the pennant. And I talked to Doug DeSense about this and, and he said that that loss for him was tougher than when the Orioles blew a three, one lead in the 1979 world series. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he said, and he was not shy at all about pointing the finger at mock. I mean, he said, you know, the series was decided by a guy who wasn't on the field. Um, so, I mean, I think that was really, um, that was really telling for me. I mean, normally you don't get those sorts of comments. I mean, certainly in post, you know, 40 years after the fact, it's not as big of a deal, but, um, but that was really telling for me. And, and, and then I I think, you know, what the Brewers did, um, in turning around, I mean, they, they had really high hopes heading into that season. Um, they made a managerial change and then just took off. And so I think that was really an impressive run by that team. Um, so, I mean, again, I, I've never been a really a Brewers fan. I don't dislike them, um, I, but I've never necessarily rooted for them, but that team is just really interesting. Sure is. And, uh, you know, Milwaukee fans still remember them pretty fondly as we'll, as we'll, as we'll get into, despite uh, what happens in the world series that we come to, uh, in October of 82 and, uh, uh, Vin Scully, uh, who called the series for CBS radio at the time, uh, said that no sports writer can resist, uh, trying to make a beer pun of their own for the, for the series or uh, either calling it the world beeries or focusing on the brouhaha between the two teams. And, uh, Scully added his own saying that no matter who wins there'd be no bad hops um which is debatable among uh beer fans i think (laughs) but anyway uh for your retelling of the period uh although your book is heavy on this archival research you have done uh uh, firsthand research uh, of your own and you also sprinkle in the pop culture and the hop culture uh such as the context of um uh, miller light uh eating away at anheuser-busch's uh market share leading to the 82 introduction of budweiser light as it's known at the time that effectively stopped the bleeding to Miller Lite. Is there anything else to add about the uh, beer context of these two Midwestern cities and them uh, facing off in uh, a, really a unique World Series? Uh, thinking of the previous year, we have, you know, the two coast teams. We have LA and New York, and it's, uh, you know, glitzy and glamorous for the uh, for TV ratings. And now all of a sudden we have uh, St. Louis and Milwaukee, two teams that kind of come out of nowhere in 82. Uh, Along those lines, also, what are the media saying about this matchup on the field before it uh, it begins? It, you know, it's funny. I think 
had Twitter been around in 1982, I think you would have seen a lot of the same comments that we saw heading into this year's World Series about, oh, no one's going to watch this World sure, Series. Sure, sure. Two Midwestern teams and blah, 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 which I, I think is is a crap argument. It would have been a crap argument then. Certainly would have been one then. Sorry to interrupt, but the Diamondbacks oh, were a very interesting team. You know, I, yeah. you, you, you wanted them to go all the way, but then, you know, as long as you don't have, a, you know, some kind of uh, axe to grind against Texas, you're you're fine with them winning for the first time too. So it was, um, in spite of it not being two, you know, front runners or, you know, the, the coast teams, the, this year's World Series was a, a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, and and again, the people who want to see the Yankees, the Dodgers, or the Red Sox in the World Series are Major League Baseball ad executives and people in Boston, New York, and LA. Right. Um, and, you know, true baseball fans want to see the two two. I mean, I would I was about to say the two best teams, but then there's also that big complaint about you know, oh well, the teams who had the best records got knocked out because of the lengthy delays and but whatever. I mean, I think that's also I, I'm not a fan of that argument as well. But anyway. I kind of digress, um, but I mean, so, but I mean, again, the big thing was the contrast between those two teams and how that how they played. Um, but but to get back to the beer issue of it, one of the this is one of the things that I found really really interesting in my research was was that battle between Budweiser and Miller. Um, Bud had been the dominant industry leader for so long that they kind of felt untouchable. Um, and you certainly see that a lot in business. I'm not a business person, but you know, I'm smart enough to figure that you can see where businesses think they're untouchable, too big to fail. And then all of a sudden things change and they get caught. Um, and so Miller suddenly began to eat into their market share once they introduced Miller Lite. And, and a big part of that was, was the commercials. Um, Miller was owned by Philip Morris at the time, and they took the approach for Miller Lite that had worked with Marlboro, um, and they they weren't selling the product so much as they were selling the people, largely men, who used it. And so for Marlboro, it was the Marlboro man, you know, the tough cowboy. Um, but that's not going to work when you're essentially selling diet beer. Um <laughs> And so they came up with the idea to use tough athletes. And so they brought in Dick Butkus and Bubba Smith and, you know, and with the uh, obvious, you know, subtext that, well, if it's, if, the, if it's tough enough for those guys, it's going to be tough enough for, for you sitting on your couch. Um, and then as the campaign evolved, they just brought in more and more guys, comedians, you know, they brought in Rodney Dangerfield. And of course, Bob Euchre became one of the stars of those ads as well. Um, and Budweiser had initially said that they would never make a light beer. Um, but by 1982, they felt that the time had come um, because they were losing so much of their market share. So they introduced Bud Light. And then they also just began sponsoring any sporting event that they could get their name on to increase awareness um, of themselves and their product. Um, so I, I, I read a book called Bitter Brew, which was about the history of Budweiser that was really fascinating um and that was a big part of where all this came from that just talked about all these different factors at play um in the budweiser and miller battle and i thought that was really a fun part to the book and and um as i said it was an interesting thread that i was able to weave through to kind of tie things together um because i mean at a certain point it sort of gets mundane okay now the calendar turns so now let's talk about october mm -hmm. um here's what you know but if you can start off chapters or weave in different things that happen get away from the game for a moment and then try to tie it back. I think that really helps drive the narrative. 
Indeed, and I think there's uh, plenty for people who uh, were alive in, in this era to uh, to relive and, and reconnect with uh, with the threads that uh, they may have forgotten uh, from from this history of the uh, com- competing uh, beer sellers. Uh, but as it turns out, the uh, Sun Series itself almost becomes a laugher. Uh, Milwaukee scores the first 13 runs of the series, including ten uh, nothing drubbing in Game One. Uh, the Cardinals salvage Game Two in spite of their big RBI men. Uh, George Hendrick and Keith Hernandez going over uh, the, the entire series at that point. Um, uh, I, I played catcher all my life, so I, I'm a big fan of Daryl Porter and coming from uh, nowhere to contribute in a pretty big way uh, in the in the absence of his uh, uh, RBI team, RBI um, producing teammates. So he went two for four with two RBI and a crucial caught stealing of Paul Molitor in the ninth of game two. And instead of what could have been a two nothing Brewers series lead, it was a tide going back to Milwaukee one game apiece. And a big reason for this is, as you say, Bruce Suter is available for the Cardinals and Raleigh Fingers isn't available for uh, the Brewers. So how does that change the equation for the Brewers without their own Cy Young uh, reliever to uh, close out games or to hold games, at least if they're tied? Yeah, I mean, it it changes everything. I mean, I, 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 again, I think you have to give the Brewers a ton of credit for this series. I mean, once once they fire Buck Rogers and name Harvey Keene as their manager, that team just took off. And there was a real family atmosphere with that team. They stuck together, um, and, it, and it really showed. And when you're missing the reigning Cy Young winner at the back of your bullpen, you simply have to outscore your opponents. And that's nearly what they did in this series. I mean, we talked about it earlier, but think of the contrast in the dugouts, right? If if the Cardinals have a lead in the seventh inning, you, they feel supremely confident in knowing that they can send Suter out and the game is probably going to be over. Um, and in Milwaukee, Pete Ladd stepped in for for fingers and, and pitched pretty well, but he, you know, had a bad moment in game two. Um when he walked the bases or loaded the bases and then walked in, you know, the eventual winning run. Um, but Herzog, you know, again, we talked about it before Herzog knew that he had his hammer, he had his guy and Harvey Keene didn't. And, and again, something that other people that some of the, your listeners may not think about too, is, you know, in the, in this era too, you, we still saw saves of two plus innings. Mm-hmm. It was not unusual at all to bring in your closer in the seventh inning mm-hmm. or the eighth inning. Um, and so, you know, again, you really only have to have a lead until potentially the seventh inning, and you can bring in Raleigh Fingers or Bruce Suter or Goose Gossage or whoever it was at the time, and they can close it out for you. And um, that's a big, big change in how the game is played now compared to when it was then. And in fact, that's what happens for the Cardinals in both game two and game seven. And, uh, you know, they get Suter in to close it out with a more than two inning save. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, as the series shifts to, to Milwaukee, it's the series, the city's first World Series since 1958, uh, back when they had the Braves. Uh, Cardinals fans will always remember Willie McGee's heroics in game three, but the Brewers storm back in games four and five to take a World Series lead back to St. Louis. Uh, Brewers fans uh, send their team off uh, in fantastic style. They invade the field basically uh, as if they had won the series, even though there's still one game to win yet. 
but they had cause to be optimistic. They had uh, uh, Harvey Keen could send out both Don Sutton and Pete Vukovic in games six and seven. Uh, Sutton had saved their skin twice already, uh, both in the game 162 and in game three against uh, the Angels. And Vukovic was their ace who would win the Cy Young that that, that season, even though uh, people on YouTube think Dave Steve might uh, should have done so. But we won't get into that. Um, did the Cardinals go cold in games four and five in Milwaukee, or were the Brewers just the better team in those games with their wall banging style to uh uh you know outscore them in the absence of uh of their hammer at the end of the uh, bullpen i i really think the brewers were were the better team especially in milwaukee i mean remember whitey hersaw built his cardinals team around speed and defense to take advantage of the artificial turf at bush stadium and it was the same thing that he did in kansas city when he built that team for Kauffman stadium. Um, but that effect is going to be negated a little bit when you get on, on grass, um, you know, homers are homers, regardless of the playing surface, um, you know, for the most part, obviously ballpark dimensions play a factor, but, but, but boy, Willie McGee really did put on a show in game three. Um, and, uh, you know, he had two homers made an amazing catch at the wall to Rob Gorman Thomas that we talked about. And, and that's really, that's not too bad for a guy who people may forget started the season in the minor leagues. He didn't even make the team out of spring training. Um, and again, a guy that they picked up <clears throat> in October of 81 for Bob Sykes from the Yankees. Sykes never pitched again in the big leagues and McGee goes to win a world series in 82 with the Cardinals and wins an MVP uh, in 85. So that was another brilliant move by Herzog that, uh, you know, a lot of people don't really talk about. I mean, you, people talk about the big, the big trade with the Brewers and getting Ozzie Smith, but s essentially stealing Willie McGee from the, from the Yankees was a pivotal moment uh, in that, in the 1982 season, even if it took place in, in, uh, in 81. Indeed. Um, and with all the deals that Whitey makes, it's easy for one or two to go under under the radar and uh, sure. to, to see that, you know, uh, some of the deals didn't really seem to have too much of an effect. You know, you would have expected David Green to have been a bigger part of those Cardinals teams when right. he kind of goes missing in, in, in the postseason in 82. And I don't think he's even part of the 85 team uh, when they're no. when they're back at it. And, and that's the crazy thing, too. Right. You look at that big trade. The Cardinals lost that trade. I don't know that there's any way that you can say that the Cardinals <laughs> won that trade. Um, I mean, he traded away two Hall of Famers, the next two Cy Young, Cy Young Award winners, uh, a World Series MVP, and then beats the team that they trade that he traded them to in the World Series. And and to your point, the key the key guy in that trade was David Green. He was supposed to be a superstar, and he didn't pan out for multiple reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that was probably from a Cardinals perspective, probably the worst trade that he made because mm -hmm. um, for a, for a, about a week period, the Brewer, the Cardinals actually had Bruce Suter and Raleigh Fingers in their bullpen at the same time. It was during the winter meetings. And obviously, Whitey made that deal with the with the idea of flipping fingers because he really wanted Suter. But um yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic to go back and look at all the moves that he made and, and, and see how he shaped those teams and shaped really the entire decade of the 80s with a lot of the moves that he made and with the style of baseball that he played.
Indeed. And uh, Whitey's pretty fortunate that uh, Willie McGee turned out and uh, became yeah. a center fielder of the future if David Green wasn't able to uh, do so. So anyway, yeah. the, the series goes 3-2 uh, to the Brewers uh, back to Bush Stadium in St. Louis. And game six turns out to be another laugher, 13-1 uh, to one in a game that's uh, delayed for almost three hours by rain. Um, uh, the gem comes not from Don Sutton, but from uh, John Stuper, a, a youngster for the Cardinals. So the series is even at three games with uh, both teams having won a blowout and two relatively close games and everything comes down to a game seven which I don't care what the sport is that's uh, that's a that's something you tune you tune into um, the Cardinals send their ace to the mound Joaquin Andujar and it's a back and forth game where the Cardinals manage a lead the Brewers tie it on a home run which uh, you know again a contrast of styles uh, and they the Brewers actually take a lead on Andujar's uh, a big error uh, throwing away um, a bunt basically the Cardinals pull ahead based, uh, thanks to their big RBI men finally waking up. Uh, that's uh, Keith Hernandez and uh, uh, George Hendrick before Daryl Porter puts his stamp on uh, uh, with an insurance run in the eighth inning. So uh, what are your favorite memories from this Game 7, and do you think 1982 deserves a shout among the best World Series ever played? I took a look at uh, you know people who list this, and it's like something in the 60s or something like that. Uh, so this series doesn't get a whole lot of play outside of St. Louis and Milwaukee, perhaps. But considering how close and up for grabs many of the games were and how it's sort of a seesaw series going back and forth cardinals brewers cardinals brewers does it deserve a shout for one of the best world series ever played i absolutely think it does i mean and again when you go back and look at game seven and to your point any game seven you know there's a lot on the line everything is on the line you know and so mm-hmm. there's a lot of tense moments unless you get you know again not to probably too soon for you but uh you know game seven in the 1985 world series um was a little bit different well, that, that turned out but, to be a laugher but uh yeah. <laughs> thankfully but, i was just about uh you know eight months old at the time so you've yeah you but <laughs> you probably skipped that one right. um yeah so i mean again again in game seven you've got two injured pitchers going head to head um you know with with anduhar and 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 uh, Vukovic and then again the closer situation and then the fact that it was a one-run game after seven innings right so I mean a game seven that's a one-run game heading into the final couple innings of the game and then on top of that one of the stories that I love is is you know Keith Hernandez on his birthday getting the big hit off of a guy that he played little league against Mm -hmm. um, which I think is just a super cool story Um, so I mean I do think this is an underrated series and 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 it was that that was another factor in me deciding to write this book. I mean, and and again, maybe maybe this is uh, not talked about as much as it should be because the Cardinals go to the World Series again in '85 and again in '87. I yeah, '87 was the one I was talking about before '95. Oh, sure. <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the contrast and style between the two teams, and <clears throat> and then you know, Game Seven is to your point is always exciting. So I mean, I think this. It, I've, I've never really looked to see what the most popular World Series was, but for this to be ranked that low, I think, is really criminal. I mean, how could how could it be, you know, ranked below series that went five games? You know, I mean, that's that's crazy. It was a great series. Yeah, I think there's a recency bias in most of these lists. And, uh, you know, yeah. they'll, they'll say that there were two blowouts and, you know, uh, other factors, you know, Milwaukee, St. Louis, not not the most sexy series uh, that, that you could possibly have. But um, these two teams, despite what, you know, the East Coast media might have to say about it, uh, have lived long in the memory for uh, fans, both of St. Louis and Milwaukee. For... I think that's an excellent point. I think if you take this exact same series with the exact same scores and it's 
against Dodgers, Yankees in the 50s. Sure. It's one of the top World Series in baseball history. Uh, possibly. <laughs> Someone should look into that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, so the Cardinals in the 80s have, uh, with Whitey Ball, have uh, success for pretty much the rest of the decade. Yeah. You know, they have some on seasons, some off seasons, but uh, their other two trips to the World Series and in Heartbreak in Game 7. So 82 is the, the only Whitey Herzog World Series. Uh, and they wouldn't find their way back on top until 2006, which is the first one that I can say that I actually lived. Uh, the, the Brewers, for their part, uh, have been searching for another trip to the World Series ever since 1982 and have a, a streak going that continued in this past year uh, where every team that has eliminated them from postseason play has gone on to at least make the World Series, uh, including the Diamondbacks. So uh, it's not just a matter of hindsight, though, um, because Milwaukee threw their 82 team a parade despite their losing efforts in Game 7. Like, can you imagine... New York doing that for the Yankees in 81. I, I don't think yeah. it ha- I don't think it happened. <laughs> but um, do you sense that these teams ignited their respective cities in a special sort of way that isn't typical of, um, you know, the 80 Phillies or 81 Dodgers? And are there other reasons why they remain so beloved beyond those that I mentioned? I, I definitely think that's the case. I think for St. Louis, it was a return to their glory years, you know, of the 1960s. Um, and to your point, kicked off a great run in the in the 1980s um and then for milwaukee again one of the reasons they're so fascinating for me anyway is that that window opened and shut so quickly um i think again in large part to raleigh fingers and pete vukovic's injuries um you know not many teams can stay in the hunt when you lose back-to-back Cy young winners um and but that brewers team will live forever in milwaukee i mean and um you know, with the addition of Sutton, they had five Hall of Famers on that roster. Um, and and that's special, you know. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe if the Brewers had won the, a World Series in the 80s, this team would be looked at like some of the Phillies or Royals teams of the 70s as teams that, that got close um, but then finally got over the hump or, to, you sure. know, or the Pistons teams that finally got past the Celtics and the Bulls. Um, but I think the fact that they've – that the Brewers still haven't gotten there – making makes this team really special for Brewers fans. And I'm, you know, not from Milwaukee, but I know enough about it to, and read enough about it to say that this team is still a really special team in that area. And I think that's super cool. I mean, I mean, they had a lot of good players and, and, and they were a fun team to watch. And I think, um, but it's, it's not, it's pretty unusual to see a team that, that did not win a championship be so beloved in you know, in the city this long down the road, I think it's pretty cool. Absolutely. And from the St. Louis angle, I can just say that, um, you know, I think the 85 Cardinals team is the one that most people think of when they think back to the 80s Cardinals, you know, with Vince Coleman on it. He, of course, has the, you know, tragic injury to the the tarp in in Bush Stadium. And, um, uh, you know, Don Deckinger's name is still uh, reviled in in St. Louis and I think probably will be pretty much forever. But it's the 1982 team that uh, that, uh, actually, uh, you know, won the game seven, uh, whereas 85 and 87, they didn't. Um, 320 26 stolen bases as a team i think in 85 that's insane mind-boggling it's just crazy how much bigger would you have to make the bases today to to get a number like that yeah 
Um, so anyway, uh, as we are looking back on it in 2023, I'm curious if you have any reflections on the Sud series and the 1982 baseball season as a whole from our era of analytics that kind of uh, didn't come in vogue until the uh, late 90s. Uh, so we live in a time of what they call the three true outcomes, the strikeout, the walk, the home run, and these uh, dominate. Um, the fans and front offices are in increasingly attuned to uh, saber metrics, war or wins above replacement and other advanced stats are all the buzz and complete games are a rarity. You don't see pitchers going the distance anymore. And in fact, they often get taken out uh, the third time through the lineup so that they aren't uh, uh, shelled. Uh, but instead, um, the small ball brand of bunting and stealing and choking up on the bat and moving guys over is essentially toast. Um, the Brewers had their wall banging style and that might've been before its time, but even they could uh, play small ball when the uh, situation demanded it. So uh, I'm curious, do you lament the loss of this uh, similar brand of baseball that the Cardinals were famous for, at least, uh, with their solo bases, their AstroTurf hits, and so on? And uh, might some of that come back <laughs> with the with the rule changes? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, like I said earlier, I really miss, you know, I, I say the emphasis on putting the ball in play. I don't think it, I don't think teams emphasized it in 1980. It wasn't a conscious thing. It was just that's the way the game was played. Sure, um, sure. And the pace of play has picked up but we still don't see nearly as many balls in play as we used to. And that means just less action. It means fewer great defensive plays, great throws from the outfield, errors, bad throws, balls getting through, you know, a ball that, you know, you see those balls that the, the in the hole where the shortstop and the second baseman both dive for it and it goes in between them. You know, those are the kinds of things that you don't see anymore. Um, guys trying to stretch hits a single to a double, double to triple, whatever that may be. Um, and, and I think, again, it might be another get off my lawn moment, but I, <laughs> I, I do think the game was better then. Um, and But I will say in defense of pitchers today um, and the loss of the complete game, it was, it was just the game was played differently then than it is now. And guys aren't expected to finish games. And so they throw harder from the get-go. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you, you can't tell me that someone like Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander or Aaron Nola or any of these other guys that are around now – could not have pitched in the eighties. Oh yeah. They would dominate. <laughs> yeah, they would have. I mean, you know, but again, they don't throw complete games now and pitchers, whether it's Aaron Nola or whether it's the fifth starter for, you know, for the Padres, I mean, they don't throw CGs now because they don't have to, they're not expected to. <clears throat> Every team has six guys in the bullpen who throw 97 plus. Um, and so, Pitchers go out and they know well, I only have to throw five innings or six innings. And that just changes the dynamic. And I think that's one of the things that bothers me when you see people criticize pitchers today. Oh, back in the day, you know, my day that guys used to throw complete games. Now they only throw five innings. Well, yeah, but back in your day, pitchers weren't throwing 97 in the first inning. I mean, one of the things that really stood out to me, you talk about watching older games on YouTube, Jim Palmer was um, calling the playoff game and said that Bob McClure, the, the Brewers pitching coach, uh, Cal McClish, told Palmer that if Bob McClure was throwing harder than 82, he was overthrowing. <laughs> 82 miles an hour. If you throw 82 miles an hour now, you're not even getting drafted. That's batting practice, yeah. Let, yeah, let alone pitching in a World Series. And so, you know, I mean, guys like Nolan Ryan and Goose Gossage and J.R. Richard, they threw just as hard as guys throw now, but they but they worked in the in the low 90s and dialed it up when they needed to. And and, you know, guys today, I don't you know, they really there's guys that throw harder, but 
you know, they, they don't have to, they throw harder because they can. And because they know that they've got five guys behind them that can throw 90 plus. And so it's just a completely different way to play the game. So anyway, I'll step off my, uh, my, my podium now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just different, you know, I'm susceptible to the uh, old man yells at cloud sort of uh, critique as well, because, you know, I th there's something uh, exciting about a complete game shutout that just, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to uh, see anytime soon. And, and, you know, and it takes a lot of skill too. I mean, and, and it, it, it's the difference, you know, in some instances between pitching and throwing and, mm -hmm. and a lot of people criticize John Smoltz for the way that he calls games. And, and, um, you know, I, I, subscribe to some of that but also if you act if you really listen to i think we've fallen into a part where everyone criticizes the announcers especially national broadcasters no matter what because they don't listen to what they're saying they just say this guy is obviously rooting for the other team and so i hate him mm. but if you listen to john smoltz talk about pitching and about how to set hitters up and about how you know again in the 80s and 90s smoltz knew that he had to go through the lineup three times and so maybe he's not going to show a certain pitch to a guy the first two times up because he knows he can use it in the seventh inning when he needs it. Mm -hmm. and now that's not a factor. And so guy, and that's why, you know, you see batting averages lower and everything because you're facing, you know, a, a split, a cutter and, you know, a curveball and, 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 you know, two seam and four seam potentially in the same at bat. And that's extremely difficult. I mean, you look at the, those, the video they have now of the tunneling where you showed the release mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. And four pitches end up in four different quadrants of the strike zone. I'm amazed that anybody gets a freaking hit anymore. It's yeah. insane. Honestly. Uh, so, uh, Jay, to round out our conversation about Sud Series, I'm uh, curious if there's any unsung heroes from the postseason or favorite stories from the 1982 season from your research that didn't maybe make the book that you wanted to highlight. Um, what, uh, what haven't we talked about that uh, interested you from 82? One of the guys that I've always sort of had a soft spot for is Ben Ogilvy. Um, he was a guy, he he was listed, baseball reference lists him at 160 pounds. Um, and he hit bombs. I mean, he hit 41 homers in 1980 and 34 in, in 82. Led, he tied for Reggie with Reggie for the American League lead in home runs in 1980. And he weighed, you know, at the time, what, a buck 50, a buck 60? I mean, that's. That's insane. Um, and then there were some pop culture things that um, that ended up not making the final cut. Um, one of the the most painful one for me was eliminating the movie Diner. Um, mm. I've always loved that that film and thought I had a strong enough tie in. It was directed by Barry Levinson, um, who who was a big Orioles fan. He wore an Orioles hat all the time on the set while he was shooting. The day the the premiere took place in Baltimore. It was set in Baltimore, um, and. We just couldn't make it work. Um, and so that was that was tough for me. And, and you know, there was also just the larger issue of cocaine and how prevalent it became in the game. Um, and I get into Tim Raines's problems and Steve Howe and Alan Wiggins and and Daryl Porter and others. It was a huge part of the game, um, unfortunately. So, um, you know, in that time. But I, I sort of didn't want to get into that. Um, I wanted to keep more of the focus on the field. And maybe maybe it's a little bit of a Pollyanna view that I didn't want to get into some of the the bad stuff, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, I think if you, it's also Pandora's box, if you open that up, I mean, first of all, we don't know who was using and who wasn't sure. um, with certain exceptions. And secondly, you know, you could, you could write a whole, and there have been whole other books written, <laughs> written about that. And so, um, you know, I touch on it and, and obviously talk about how it was an issue, but I didn't really get that far into it. 
um, and the full extent of it wouldn't come out until uh, 85 or later in the decade with right. the drug trials and, and so on. And, you know, Keith Hernandez says at one point that uh, he thinks 40% of players are using in the early 80s. And uh, it, as you say, it's impossible to know who, but from the Cardinals, it's pretty easy to see that we have kind of their top performers uh, yeah. uh, all connected with cocaine. So in addition to being the Suds series, it could also be, you know, a drug series perhaps. But uh, all that is all that is very interesting and perhaps for another book. Um, so, um, uh, Jay, I know that Sud series was published earlier this year, and I wish you well with the reception of the book. And obviously, I heartily recommend it to uh, anybody as a holiday gift for uh, remembering and looking back fondly on this earlier era of baseball, perhaps for Brewers and Cardinals fans specifically, uh, since there's probably more meat for them than, you know, say, Twins fans. Uh, but um, are you working on anything now uh, from that same decade of the 80s? I, I can't help but notice that you skipped a year <laughs> and yeah. cover 81. But there's plenty of other uh, stories to be told from the uh, era of 80s baseball. So what should we be looking out from you or uh, uh, for from you in the near future? Uh, well, couple, I mean, well, I, I'm not sure. First of all, to address what uh, there is already an 81 book that's okay. been written um, okay. called Split Season. So um, uh, so that's why I skipped to 82. One of the reasons why I skipped to 82. But um, but I, I don't really have another book in the works right now, but I am starting to get the itch again. I, I was at a book festival in Ohio recently and just being around all those other authors and talking about things really sort of rekindled my desire to potentially dive back in. Um, and then I'm also focused on taking what I've done for the 80s and extending it to the 90s. And so I have uh, at least online. So I, I have a I'm, I'm going to be launching a 90s baseball website in the spring to to go along with my 80s website. And then um, I already have a Facebook group for that. That's called Baseball in the 80s. So I'm posting, you know, pretty much every day right now on that page um, to, along with my companion 80s baseball Facebook page. And I've got I started that page to build an audience for my first book. Um, and that community has actually grown to about 65,000 people on that oh. 80s baseball page. So Excellent. I'm hoping to do the same thing for the 90s. Um, and then uh, honestly, my other passion is, is World War II. And so I want to do the same thing for World War II as well. So those are sort of what I have in the hopper right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, I never say never. And I, I mean, I certainly would be interested in writing. I mean, Perfect World, I write, you know, I start in 80, go from 82 to 83 and finish out the decade and maybe go into the 90s as well, because I was a I was an intern in Cincinnati um, at one of the local TV stations in 1990. And so I went to 50 or 60 Reds games that year, maybe not that, many, but a lot of Reds games that year. Um, and so that team was kind of really cool to be around as well. So I would love to take what I've done with the eighties and bring it into the nineties as well. So um, at least I'm doing it on, on Facebook and on, on a, a website that will be coming, uh, hoping to launch that in April. So. Very nice. And I'm sure there's plenty of stories that can be told from uh, Pete Rose, Marge Schott, and, and oh, yeah. uh, the, you know, the revival of the Reds in the in, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, yeah. very, very good, though. So, uh, uh, Jay Daniel, thank you so much for your time today, for your dedication to baseball as it was played in the 80s and 90s, and for being our guest on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was, this was fun.
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, Jay Daniels' new book is uh, called Suds Series with the subtitle Baseball, Beer Wars, and the Summer of 82. It's available now from the University of Missouri Press, wherever quality books are sold. Again, he also blogs at 80sbaseball.com, and you, I'm sure you can find your way to his Facebook pages for 80s and 90s baseball from there if you would uh, if you would like. I've been Rob Heaton for New Books and Sports, where you'll always catch a good game. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll uh, talk with you again soon. Bye-bye.